and thanks for listening in to Welcome to Antifascism, a Substack podcast and blog that examines why liberal nations and people were seduced by fascist ideas and movements over the last decade. We are your hosts, Alastair Cannon and Nick Purdy, and this is episode two, where we look at the life and ideas of Karl Fried Graf Durkheim, a Nazi propagandist who became a liberal spiritualist after World War II. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and Substack, where you can read text versions of each episode before the audio is released. It is October 30th, 1945. Hitler has shot himself through the head in his Berlin bunker. Auschwitz has become known to the world. Hiroshima and Nagasaki lie in ruins, levelled by America's atomic blasts two months before. The Third Reich, Mussolini's Italy, and the Japanese Empire have fallen. World War II is over. And in Karuizawa, Japan, authorities arrest renowned Nazi propagandist Karl Fried Graf Durkheim for suspected war crimes. The police lock Durkheim away in Tokyo's Sugamo prison, where he awaits a court trial that may end with his execution. Every day for 16 months, Durkheim faces the spectre of impending death. In prison, Durkheim does not know whether salvation or destruction awaits him. In terror, in anxiety, he sleeps as though a noose knots around his neck. The stress gives him heart attacks, convulsions, insomnia. Unable to act, restrained to waiting, he retreats into his mind, He flees into the thick of ideas and smothers the uncertainty of his world with thought. Between his cell walls, Durkheim will have the most profound spiritual experience of his life. He will undergo what he later identifies as a radical transformation, a dissolution of the self, a tabula rasa of the ego. This shift will have consequences that reach across countries through decades, for it will not only make him a beloved and influential spiritual leader, it will help transform Western spirituality. His new spiritual system will also be a forerunner, a pre-echo of the most influential political ideology of the late 20th century, neoliberal individualism. Herr Durkheim led a colourful existence in the years before his imprisonment in Japan. Born into a wealthy, aristocratic family, his whole adult life had been dedicated to serving the German state. As a young man, he served the German Empire as an officer on the front lines of World War I. In his four years at the front, he encountered the horrors of war and violence. He spent months shadowed by the spectre of impending death. But amidst the destruction, he found that life acquired a deep meaning. Purpose followed from his unquestionable, ready-to-die commitment to the fatherland. Staring into a dead man's frozen eyes, he realized he could feel free and happy. A supernatural fullness became clear to him against this terrifying background of non-life. He also discovered the strange pleasure in deliberately thrusting himself 
into deadly danger. The parasuicidal joys of embarking upon a nightly assault on a wooded hill or jumping through a defile under machine gun fire made him feel free. It made him feel indestructible. The greater the fear that seized me, he once wrote, the deeper within me was the feeling of gratitude for the reclaimed and victorious life. With death in the background, I experienced the value of life. Durkheim discovered a link between death, pleasure, meaning and obedience during the First World War. He acquired a taste for it and after the Empire lost the fight, he indulged further in these morbid pleasures. In 1919, he supported one of the far-right Freikorps units in their fight against the Munich Republic. Later that year, he narrowly escaped his execution at the hands of a Spartacist firing squad during the Bavarian Revolution. But these masochistic pleasures could not last forever. One night before he was to fight with the Bavarian Freikorps against the Spartacists, Durkheim's conscience awakened him. In an imperious, overwhelming tone, it told him, your life as a soldier is over. Unable to disobey this commandment, Durkheim left the army. In 1919, Durkheim found himself at a loss. His fatherland defeated, his nation in turmoil, and his ideals wounded. He felt an entire era of German history coming to an end. Before his eyes, he saw an entire period of life whose very meaning was dying, a reality was sinking. Facing his country's economic and spiritual collapse, he gave his time to intellectual pursuits. At university, he studied psychology and philosophy, eventually becoming a professor. In his spare time, he published leaflets promoting anti-Bolshevik attitudes and counter-revolutionary politics. And meanwhile, he and his wife befriended a couple, the Vindals. Together, they formed a group called The Square, and they spent their time discussing the text of Christian mystic Meister Eckhart, strategies to awaken the German spirit and the future of their folk. Over the next decade, Durkheim's country descended further into economic and social turmoil. Political violence, hyperinflation, poverty, and unemployment plagued the nation. People suffered from chronic anxiety, fear, powerlessness, and despair. Their ideals lost, their world ruined, and their hopes gone. Many lost faith in their society and used all their energy simply trying to survive their sadness and the terrors of disintegration. Others turned to violent political action to quell their misery and fight the sense of groundlessness within themselves and their country. A particularly German melancholia, a Weimarian nihilism, enveloped the nation. Sebastian Hafner's Defying Hitler describes it aptly. Then came 1923, he writes. That extraordinary year is probably what has marked today's Germans with those characteristics 
that are so strange and incomprehensible in the eyes of the world, and so different from what used to be thought of as the German character. The uncurbed, cynical imagination, the nihilistic pleasure in the impossible for its own sake, and the energy that has become an end in itself. In that year, an entire generation of Germans had a spiritual organ removed, the organ that gives men steadfastness and balance, but also a certain inertia and stolidity. It may variously appear as conscience, reason, experience, respect for the law, morality, or the fear of God. A whole generation learned then, or thought it learned, to do without such ballast. The preceding years served as a novitiate in nihilism, but in 1923, its high priests were ordained. No other nation has experienced anything comparable to the events of 1923 in Germany. All nations went through the Great War, and most of them have also experienced revolutions, social crises, strikes, redistribution of wealth, and currency devaluation. None but Germany has undergone the fantastic, grotesque extreme of all these together. None has experienced the gigantic carnival dance of death, the unending bloody Saturnalia in which not only money but all standards lost their value. Writing in 1915, Freud put it even more succinctly. In the confusion of wartime, he wrote, we ourselves are at a loss as to the significance of the impressions which press in upon us and as to the value of the judgments which we form. We cannot but feel that no event has ever destroyed so much that is precious in the common possessions of humanity, confused so many of the clearest intelligences, also thoroughly debased what is highest. Science herself has lost her passionless impartiality, her deeply embittered servants seek for weapons from her with which to contribute towards the struggle with the enemy. Anthropologists feel driven to declare him inferior and degenerate. Psychiatrists issue a diagnosis of his disease of mind or spirit. Then the war in which we had refused to believe broke out and it brought disillusionment. Not only is it more bloody and more destructive than any war of other days, because of the enormously increased perfection of weapons of attack and defense, it is at least as cruel, as embittered, as implacable as any that has preceded it. For Freud, logical bedazzlement was the only possible response to war. Among the nihilistic chaos, Durkheim gave all his energy to his ideas. Sensing a need to revitalize his nation and discover life's meaning, he immersed himself in the Weimar Republic's right-wing culture. Obsessed by thoughts of Germany's future, he tirelessly published nationalistic pamphlets, he wrote articles of communist revolution, and in his diary he wrote endlessly of Germany's need for the arrival of a new man that would revitalize the country by embodying folkish ideals of blood and soil. Aiming for spiritual rebirth, he studied world religions, searching for their transcendent, shared truths. 
Meanwhile, Durkheim also read and approved highly of a certain book published by an aspiring German politician, Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. Its message resonated deeply with him. Perhaps it was because in Hitler's hateful vision of domination, that deathly horizon implied by his ideas, Durkheim once again saw the chance to grasp at the very moment of possible annihilation in the anticipation of nothingness, the very meaning of life. As he immersed himself in right-wing ideas in the 1920s, Durkheim could not know what the future held. Later in life, he would describe himself as apolitical, neither Nazi nor anti-Nazi. Despite this, he effectively spent the decade preparing himself for life in Hitler's Germany. When the Nazi party seized control of Germany in 1933, Durkheim saw it as a triumph. Through Adolf Hitler, he wrote, The gods have given to the German people the power to awaken fellow Germans in an infectious movement and transform them towards this new man. With such convictions, he immediately joins the Brown Shirts. He enthusiastically published articles on Nazi philosophy in journals called Community and Purpose and Value as Constituents of Meaningful Action. The Nazi ideology quickly became his own and he an eloquent defender of its tenets. In a 1934 piece, he summarized his views. Like Alfred Rosenberg, a chief Nazi ideologist, Durkheim believed the German people were united by their racially conditioned soul, the Völkisch spirit they shared due to their organic connection through common blood and soil. Durkheim also believed Germans had a duty to protect their race soul by casting out foreign bodies. He felt all must discard their selfish individualistic concerns and militantly devote themselves to manifesting this divine force in the world. Dedication to the race soul was a German's holy duty, he thought. Only total submission to the logic of race could restore the German people's power and perfection, lost when the empire fell. He implored work and action as a response to collapse and melancholy, narcissism as a remedy for shattered self-esteem. A perverted will to power, the Nazis believed, would restore the ego and the world. Durkheim, like so many other Germans, followed Rosenberg's ideas and made race the guiding star of his existence. And his dedication was handsomely rewarded. With his talents for Nazi philosophy and propaganda, Durkheim rapidly climbed the ranks of the Nazi party. By 1935, he was chief assistant to Joachim von Ribbentrop, Germany's wartime foreign minister and the first war criminal hanged at Nuremberg. He had also met with foreign leaders, including Winston Churchill. But in 1938, a complication arose. The Nazis discovered Durkheim had Jewish ancestry. His political ambitions in Germany were shattered. In what now looks like a moment of uncharacteristic mercy from the Nazis, they said Durkheim could continue to work for the Nazi cause if he moved to Japan to work as a cultural envoy. In 
Nazi anti-Semitism had now harmed him directly. Durkheim, however, remained a believer in the cause. He agreed to his new posting and promptly left for Japan. In Japan, Durkheim redoubled his commitment to Nazi ideology. Durkheim was deeply impressed by Japan's strong military culture and its people's sense of discipline. Like Hitler, he felt that Germany could learn from the Japanese, who saw sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good. So he worked day and night to synthesize German and Japanese folkish beliefs. He wrote pamphlets, he gave speeches across the country. Over time, he developed an esteemed reputation. People named him the Rosenberg of the East. And eventually, in 1944, the Nazi party recognized his efforts and awarded him one of the highest honors, the War Merit Cross. But within 18 months, everything had changed. Both the Germans and the Japanese were defeated. Tokyo and Dresden had burned. A man-made sun had twice flashed over Japan. Its light reduced men to scorch marks, boiled their eyes from the skulls of those who dared to tilt their heads back to look at the burning sky. The Nazis were dead. The fascists were done. And Durkheim, that avid Nazi whose ideals had now disintegrated for the second time in his life, had been locked away in a Japanese prison. It was there, plunged into terror and sadness, his life threatened again, that his mind started to move once more. When the war was lost, Durkheim's vision for Germany's ideal future became impossible. His hopes for German power and perfection regressed from possibility into dreams. The race soul had not guided his people to a revival. It had led them to death. Afraid that his own beliefs would bring about his demise, Durkheim started to develop a new commitment for which he was ready to die. First, Durkheim abandoned his faith in his racial group ideal and substituted it for a new belief in the individual and the universal. As a Nazi, he thought that each racial group must work to manifest its group ideal and achieve perfection. But now, Durkheim believed every person had to work alone to manifest their own perfection. By freely choosing the activity that was right for them, they could unfold themselves to their maximum possibility. Doing so, they would not encounter their race soul, but what he called our divine being, a revitalizing force he thought animated all living things and whose powers could help us lead free and responsible lives and uphold our society's values and traditions. The authority of divine being, he believed, was good, and we should subordinate ourselves to it absolutely. In prison, and at a moment politically convenient for himself, Durkheim abandoned his faith in racial group perfection. Fearing punishment and death, and after a great personal trauma, he threw himself into thought and became interested in liberal individualism and ideas that had absolute validity for all men. In his own words, he was transformed. He convinced the denazification courts of this too, 
for they released this decorated Nazi from prison with only a trivial punishment, a small fine and a declaration that he was a fellow traveler of Hitler's regime. After he left prison, Durkheim was no longer a Nazi. With his freedom, he drew on his knowledge of Zen, Christianity and Jungian psychoanalysis to develop a new system of spiritual therapy and to write books like The Way of Transformation that promoted his ideas. For the rest of his life, he laboured tirelessly on his new ideas once more. And by the time of his death in 1988, Durkheim had become a spiritual leader with a devoted following and was recognised as an important contributor to the rise of Eastern religion in the West. Today, Durkheim followers remember him as a beacon for humanity, a revolutionary dispenser of life-giving wisdom. Yet his revolution may not have been as radical as he thought. It is true that Durkheim abandoned his overt racism. He exchanged his Nazi beliefs for liberal individualism. At the same time though, the underlying structure of these beliefs did not change. Both as a Nazi and as a liberal, he thought humans were beholden to an idea of a perfect future and that it was our duty to manifest it into the world. He believed we begin in a place of lack and insufficiency and that we must strive and work to achieve identity with our vision of an idealized tomorrow. Throughout his life, Durkheim believed in potential and work above all else, like Nazis, like today's liberals. He was forever beholden to possibility, to ambition, to the narcissistic perfection of the self, and implicitly condemned the present with his belief in a better tomorrow. His beliefs during and after the war diverged, not on the level of form, but of content, on whether today could be rectified with an idealized future for individuals or for groups, self-actualization or collective actualization. Given their structural similarity, Durkheim's transition from Nazi to liberal must give us pause. Perhaps his ideological transition was possible not because he radically changed, but because fascism and liberal individualism are linked in a disturbing way, because on a fundamental level they are the same, because with their narcissistic fixation on the self and its potential, they mirror each other. And perhaps Durkheim's transformation did not come from a revelation of insight, but from a mind threatened by death and disillusion. Maybe he first became a Nazi and then a liberal and clung to thoughts of an ideal tomorrow to protect himself against the uncertainties and terrors of the present, against a collapse that left him without ground in our world. That's the end of episode two. Thanks for listening and subscribe on Spotify and Substack to listen to our next episodes and read our posts.